Well, good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you back to our continuing series of Jesus on Prophecy. And i got to tell you that I am really humbled tonight that you have come back out again. Because we have been laying a foundation... And last night we began building on that foundation and we got into some very heavy truth and some very challenging truths when it comes to God's plan for us and His day of worship. And i got to tell you that tonight we are going to continue to build and it will not surprise me if by the time we are done here tonight, that some of you are in shock. And I say that because the definition of revelation is a revealing and unfolding of truths previously unknown. And that is going to happen. And you're going to see some truths from the Word of God today that probably are exact opposite of what you have been taught perhaps your whole life. Tonight we are going to get into Jesus on the Antichrist. And we are going to look at the clues from the Word of God. And I'm going to give you at least seven clues that clearly identify who the Antichrist is. And it may shock you. But I want to ask you to do something for me. Because you see, in the end of time, the Bible is very clear that we cannot trust what we hear, we can't trust what we see, and we cannot trust our emotions. And so I want to ask you to do something for me, and that is Don't believe anything that I tell you. Don't believe anything that anyone tells you. But search the Scriptures for yourself to see with what people are saying is true. Because we want to make sure that we are not basing our eternity on false information or something that we have been taught perhaps by our very godly parents, that may be wrong. And so we want to make sure that we are not going by what I say, or you're not going by your feelings, but rather we are making our choices based on the Word of God. Can we do that? And so let's get into our topic, Jesus on the Antichrist. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know every person here. You know every heart, every mind. You know our background. You know where we're coming from. You know where we are at in our spiritual journey. You know where each one of us is theologically. And Lord, you know what we need. We need the truth. And so we are opening up your word and we are looking for truth because the truth can set us free. And Lord, we want to be free to follow You. We want to be free from the deceptions that are going on in the world. 
And Lord, we want to surrender all of our hearts to You. And so we know that when we find truth, we find You. Because You are the truth. And so we're praying and asking that the Holy Spirit will do a major work in our hearts tonight, Lord. And that You will help us to see the truth so clearly that we can't dispute it. And Lord, that we would not lean on our own thoughts or understandings or ideas or teachings, but we would go and lean on the Word of God and see what You have to say. Help us to not lean on our feelings or emotions, but help us to lean on the truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For centuries, scientists believed that the earth was the center of the universe. That all of the stars and planets and even the sun rotated around the earth. And then came along a Polish man by the name of Copernicus who did some studies in this and he determined that that was not true. That actually the earth was itself in motion, spinning on its axis, and that it was rotating around the sun. Now I want to change subjects on you for a moment, so set that aside, and let's talk about the story of the spider. Many years ago, Aristotle classified the spider as an insect because he said it had six legs, like all insects do. And for centuries, no one questioned the great Aristotle. It was commonly assumed that spiders were insects and they had six legs. And then comes along a man by the name of Jean-Bastique Lamarck, And he did some research on spiders and he discovered that they had eight legs and so they weren't insects. He reclassified them in the arachnid class. Now you might say, that's great, Pastor Rod. Thank you for giving us a science lesson. But what's your point? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because here's the point. Just because something is believed to be true for centuries doesn't mean that it actually is. Let me try to put this into the proper perspective. I want you to imagine for a moment and think about Satan, the devil that beautiful, glorious angel who rebelled against God. And I would just say to you that I don't think that we give him enough credit. Because I think if you and I had the opportunity to sit down face to face with him and have a conversation with him, I don't think it would take very long for us to figure out that he is a super, super, super genius. He is an incredibly 
brilliant being, way smarter than all of us. And I don't think we give enough credit because the Bible says that at the end of time that He is going to deceive the whole world. And friends, that includes God's church. And that includes you and me. He is going to do it. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, we have to try and put ourselves in His position, how is He going to do it? And the answer is actually very, very simple. All you got to do is take a little bit of error and mix it in with truth over thousands of years, and pretty soon that error is being taught as truth. And that's exactly what has happened. He's a deceiver. And he deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he is deceiving us today. Let me try to put it in another way. Let's put it in today's vernacular. What is popular isn't always right. And what is right isn't always popular. So could it be that something like what happened with the earth being the center of the universe or the spider being an insect, could something like that find its way into the church? Is it possible that there are many millions, billions of Christians today who have accepted falsehood in the place of truth And it's so popular that nobody even questions it. Is it possible that today, just as it was in the days that Jesus walked this earth, is it possible that today the leaders of the church are setting aside the commandments of God to follow the traditions of men. A tradition that is so old that no one or most people don't even know where it started. A tradition that nearly every single Christian on the planet has accepted and thinking that they are keeping God's law when in fact they are following something that is completely of human origin. You see, friends, the book of Revelation predicts that Satan would attempt to mislead God's church. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 tells us, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who does what? 
deceives the whole world. That includes God's church. That includes you and me. He deceives the whole world and he was cast out to this earth and his angels were cast out with him. Friends, Satan is a deceiver and his goal is to overthrow God's throne. I want you to think about this for a minute. I have a question for you. What is the foundation of any government? It doesn't matter whether we're talking about God's government or the government of America or any other country around the world. What is the foundation of any government? I mean, where does its authority lie? When you're talking about a government... And you're asking the question, where does its authority lie? I think we can reason that out, and I think that we would all be in agreement that a government's authority lies in its ability to create law and to enforce it. Am I right? I think we can agree on that. So... Let's suppose that you are a subject of a government and you refuse to follow the laws of that government. Doesn't that mean that you are really refusing to be a subject of that government? I think so, right? Now suppose that you're a member of this kingdom and the government is deceiving you or someone is deceiving you into not keeping the laws that have been put out there? Are you still in rebellion against that government even though you may not know it? Here's the thing. Satan has attacked God's law. But right in the heart of God's law is the Sabbath commandment. So isn't it logical that Satan, the great deceiver, would attack the Creator by challenging the sign or the symbol of His creative authority or power? The Sabbath. Now, we know, I hope we know, I hope we believe that there are honest-hearted Christians who read the Ten Commandments and they know that it was written by God in stone and they see that fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, which says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And they look at that and they're confused. They're confused because their church is telling them, No, we need to attend corporately on Sunday. The first day of the week rather than the seventh day Sabbath. And then there are many Christians, honest 
hearted Christians who look at Luke chapter 4 verse 16 and they see that it says that Jesus as his custom was, as his habit was, he went to church on the Sabbath. And then they read verses like Matthew 24 verse 20, which is where Jesus told his disciples that they were going to be keeping the Sabbath long after he was gone back to heaven. And then they read the book of Acts and they get to Acts chapter 13 verse 42 to 44 and they see that the apostles kept the seventh day Sabbath. They read in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 that the Lord has a day and they read in Luke chapter 6 verse 5 that the Sabbath is the Lord's day. And they read the same thing in Mark chapter 2, 27 and 28 and in Matthew 12, 8. And they are confused and they say, who changed the Sabbath? And certainly God didn't change it. Because in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, it says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. And then we look at the Bible and we say, Well, God the Father didn't change it. Did Jesus change it? And then we read verses like Hebrews 13.8 that says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so if God didn't change the Sabbath and Jesus the Son didn't change the Sabbath, and the disciples couldn't change the Sabbath. Notice in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, the Bible says, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The disciples didn't change it. And so the question is, if God didn't change it, and Jesus didn't change it, and the disciples didn't change it, then who did? You see, the book of Revelation, chapter 13, we read about this vision that John has where he sees this beast rise up out of the sea. And this is a chapter where you can read about the mark of the beast and that mysterious number 666. And let's just go there. I want to see how this beast is described. Let's go to Revelation chapter 13. That's going to be page 1417 if you're using one of those seminar Bibles. Revelation chapter 13. And I want you to notice what John sees in vision. Revelation 13, starting with verse 1. John says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I'm going to stop there for now. First of all, I want you to see that John sees this beast... And we know from our previous studies already that a beast in Bible prophecy represents a king or a kingdom or a nation or a power. And we're going to look at that again in a minute. And then I also want you to notice that he sees this 
beast come up out of the sea. And we know that water in Bible prophecy represents people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And so what we see is one nation coming up in an already populated area, and so we see one kingdom conquering another. And so then we see here that John sees this beast, and he sees that this beast has parts of other beasts. He sees that it has a leopard and a bear and a lion. Did you catch that in those verses? All right. So one more thing I want you to notice there that it said, and the dragon gave this beast great authority and power. Did you catch that? Now, who's the dragon? That's Satan, right? We know that. But I also want to tell you that the dragon doesn't do anything out in the open. He's a deceiver. And so he's always working behind the scenes. And so sometimes in Bible prophecy, when it's talking about the dragon, it's not directly talking about Satan, but it may be talking about the human instrumentalities that he works through. Let me give you an example of that. In the book of Revelation, you see that this dragon is going after this woman. And the dragon is Satan, and the woman is symbolic of God's church. And we see that the woman gives birth to a baby boy, and the dragon tries to kill him. Now, we know that the baby boy was Jesus. When he was born, the dragon tried to kill him. But if you go back to the Gospels and you look at it, who was it that tried to kill Jesus when he was born? King Herod. That's right. And so the dragon was working through a human instrumentality. And so the dragon can either be Satan himself or whoever he's working through. But notice here that the dragon gives power and authority to the beast. Now let me just tell you that nearly every single Bible commentary that's out there that has ever been written, nearly 100% of them agree that this first beast of Revelation 13 is talking about the Antichrist. Nearly every single Bible commentary out there agrees with that. And so we see that the dragon, Satan, gives authority to the Antichrist. Now, I also want to point out to you the word Antichrist. Because there's sometimes where we look at that word and we think that it means someone who is against Christ. They are anti-Christ and therefore they're against Him. And certainly that's a definition. But there's another definition, a more appropriate biblical definition of anti-Christ. And that's not someone who's necessarily against Christ, but someone who tries to take the place of Christ. Someone who tries to assume the authority of God. Okay? And so let's move on from there. I want you to understand that if we are going to truly understand that 
first beast power of Revelation 13. And I say first beast because if you look at Revelation 13 verses 1 through 10, it gives you a description of the first beast. But then in verse 11 it says, then I saw another beast. And so there's a second beast of Revelation 13 and we're going to talk about him later. But we're concentrating on this beast, this first beast of Revelation 13, the Antichrist. So if we're going to truly understand Revelation 13, we need to go back to Daniel chapter 7 and we need to understand the vision that Daniel has there so that we can put the two together. But because we are going to see the similarities between these two and we're going to find out that the vision that Daniel has is essentially a part of it is the same vision that John has later. And so let's go in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, that's going to be page 1029 of your seminar Bible. Daniel 7, I want you to notice what it says in verse 2 and 3. Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, And four great beasts come up from the sea, each different from the other. And so here we see in this vision that Daniel sees four beasts coming up out of the sea, right? We're going to come back to this, but I want to skip to verse 17. Because I want you to see what it says about a beast, It says, those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. So here the Bible is interpreting itself. It's telling us that a beast is symbolic of a king, right? Now go down to verse 23. And now in verse 23, it says, thus the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom. So that's where we get the symbology that a beast represents a king, a kingdom, or a nation, or a power. Are you with me? All right. So Daniel sees these four beasts, and these four beasts represent four world-ruling empires that start with Daniel and go all the way down through the stream of time. And if you remember, I told you on the second night when we went to the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2, I told you that Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel chapter 8 are all parallel prophecies. They're all talking about the same four world-ruling empires. And so when we go to Daniel chapter 2, we have the four metals, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, and then the iron mixed with clay. And we saw that that represented four world-ruling empires. The gold represented Babylon, the silver, the Medes and the Persians, the brass or bronze, the Greeks, and then the iron monarchy of Rome, and then Rome uh, disintegrated from within and divided into ten toes. Now we have four of those metals representing four world ruling empires. Now in Daniel chapter 7 we have the same four world ruling empires being symbolized by four beasts. And I want to show you this. 
So we recognize that those four were Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the toes represented divided Rome. So in the vision of Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is going to add some information. Remember how we talked about the pan and zoom principle of Bible prophecy? We see it's talking about the four, same four world ruling empires, but now in Daniel chapter 7, we're going to zoom in and we're going to look at some of the details. So what we see here is that Daniel brings a light to power that is going to arise during the time of divided Europe and it is going to attempt to change God's law. And I'm going to show you that. So let's look at what the Bible predicts. Notice in Daniel chapter 7, verse 4, Daniel is now describing his vision. And he describes those four beasts. And he says, "...the first was like a lion..." And he had eagle's wings, and I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And so this first beast that Daniel sees is a lion with wings. Now, it might surprise you that years ago when archaeologists were digging in modern-day Iraq which is where Babylon was in ancient history, they found this basically whole city under the sand and they discovered on the walls of the buildings these engraved wing lions. And if you go back to history and you study it out, you'll see that in the ancient world, people knew that Babylon was represented by a winged lion. And many times in history, it just simply calls it the Babylonian winged lion. And so we see that the head of gold represented Babylon on the statue, and now the first beast represents Babylon in this winged lion. But of course, Babylon didn't rule the world forever. The statue in Daniel 2 told us that they were going to be conquered by who? The Medes and the Persians, right? So now we have this second beast. And Daniel says in verse 5, and suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, And it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. Now, I want you to notice that this second beast is a bear. And if it's truly a parallel prophecy to Daniel chapter 2, then that beast has to represent the Medo-Persian Empire. And it's very interesting that the statue in Daniel 2 had two arms representing the Medes and the Persians, right? And now we have this bear that is raised up on one side. Now, if you go back and you study history, you see that the Medes and the Persians were two separate kingdoms that came together and formed an alliance and conquered the world. But history shows that eventually the Persian Empire became stronger. And so we have this bear raised up on one side. And then eventually it was just simply called the Persian Empire. And then you also notice that this bear had three ribs in its mouth. And it's very interesting 
that history shows that the Medo-Persian Empire, the first thing they did was conquer Babylon. Babylon was the world's superpower and they went right for the big guy. They went right to Babylon and they conquered them. And then history shows that they went north up and conquered Lydia. And then they went south and conquered Egypt and everything in between and the then known world. Right? And so we can see how Bible prophecy is proven right by history. Well, then we go to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 6 and we get to the third beast. And it says, After this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings like a bird. And the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. And so this is very interesting too. Because if we're following along in parallel with Daniel chapter 2, it was Babylon, Medo-Persia, and then who? Greece. And so now this leopard, if it's truly parallel, it represents Greece. But the thing that's interesting about this is this is no ordinary leopard. First of all, leopards are fast, aren't they? And then you put four wings on a leopard... You know, the Babylonian winged lion was pretty fast, but now you put four wings on there. It reminds me of the cartoon Bugs Bunny and the Roadrunner, right? This guy's fast. He runs so fast he doesn't even touch the ground. And so this is a fast-moving animal. And it's interesting to know that when we think about Greece, who is the number one king that we think of in Greece? Alexander the Great. That's right. And Alexander the Great was somewhere between 30 and 33 years old, and he had already conquered the world. He did it with great speed because the Greeks came along with their bronze armor, their bronze helmets, their bronze breastplates, their bronze spears, and they were fighting against people with stones and clubs, and they just quickly mowed them over. And so we have this great speed of this four-winged leopard. But then we ask the question, why does this leopard have four heads? It's very interesting that Alexander the Great could conquer the world in a relatively short period of time, but he couldn't conquer his own passions. And he died in a drunken stupor at about... 32, 33 years of age. But before Alexander died, they asked him who was going to be the next king. And usually it's the son and then the grandson, right? But Alexander said, no, the kingdom goes to the strongest. And so when Alexander died, history shows that four of his generals we're all fighting for control of the nation and it ended up not being divided into four parts, but essentially the four of them led the nation of Greece. And history shows even their names, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, Seleucus, and Cassander. And history shows that Lysimachus took the area of the north part of the kingdom, Ptolemy took the area to the south, Seleucus the part to the east, and Cassander to the west. And so we have a four-winged leopard. The Bible is absolutely accurate and history proves it. Then we go to the fourth beast, Daniel 7 verse 7. 
After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. Think about these four beasts that Daniel saw. The first one was a lion, and then a bear, and then a leopard, and now he can't even describe this guy, right? This is some fearful and dreadful beast that has iron teeth. Now let me ask you, back in that statue of Daniel chapter 2, what were the legs made out of? Iron. And so we know we have the iron monarchy of Rome being spoken of here. And it says that this guy is just downright awful. He is vicious. And when you go back and you look at history, you see that the Romans just crushed everybody that they went against. Notice here that this beast is different from all the other beasts before it. And then Daniel says, and it had ten horns. Now, do you remember from the statue of Daniel chapter 2. How many toes were there on that statue? Ten toes, and now we have ten horns on this fourth beast. So it's very clear that this fourth beast with iron teeth is representing the iron monarchy of Rome, and the ten horns are representing the divisions of Rome, or what we know today as the nations of Europe. And we also know, too, that it was during the time of Rome that Jesus came on the scene, wasn't it? Rome ruled the world in the days of Jesus, and therefore Christianity grew up and out of the Roman Empire. The Bible describes the collapse of the Roman Empire clearly in the symbolism of the ten toes of Daniel 2 and the ten horns of Daniel 7. And during the time of the divisions of Rome, during the time of uh, divided Europe, religious apostasy is going to begin to enter into the church and there is going to be this conflict over worship. And I want to show this to you. Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, Daniel's still looking at this fourth beast. And he says, I was considering the horns. I was thinking about them. I was trying to figure out what they represented. And he says, and then there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And so here we see that this little horn removes three of the other kingdoms. There were ten, then there was the little horn, and now the little horn plucks three of those out. And we talked about those ten divisions of Rome when we talked about Daniel chapter 2, but we talked about three of them that are extinct. Because if you take something out by the root, it dies, doesn't it? And so there were three of those ten kingdoms that were destroyed and everyone was annihilated. Now, Daniel chapter 7, verse 8 continues, and he says, And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Some Bible translations say 
blasphemous words. Okay, and so here we have this little horn that Daniel says is different than all of the rest. Now, this one has the eyes like the eyes of a man. I want you to first of all notice the clues that we're receiving here. First of all, I want you to notice that this little horn comes out of the fourth beast. You with me? This little horn comes out of the fourth beast. And the fourth beast is who? Rome. So there's clue number one. Now, I want to pause for a minute and I want to add something in here. Remember what I said that nearly every Bible commentary out there says that the first beast of Revelation 13 is the Antichrist? Nearly every single Bible commentary that is out there says that this little horn is also the Antichrist. And so Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13 are talking about the same thing. We're just getting a little bit different details here. But let's look at the clues. Number one, the little horn comes out of the fourth beast among the ten horns. So clue number two is that this little horn, Antichrist power, rises up out of Rome during the time of divided Rome. And since the ten horns are already there, and we know from our study in Daniel chapter 2 that the ten toes represented those divisions and that the fall of Rome and the division of Rome happened in 476 A.D. So if the ten horns are already there and the little horn comes up among them, then the little horn power is arising after 476 A.D. Clue number three. You with me? All right, now, the little horn, I want you to notice that this little horn, according to the prophecy, didn't come up during the time of Babylon. It didn't come up out of Medo-Persia. It didn't come up out of Greece. It didn't come up out of America. It didn't come up out of anywhere else in the world. This Antichrist power, this little horn, comes up out of Rome after the divisions of Rome, sometime shortly after 476 A.D. It also says that it would arise after the ten horns because of the fact that it comes up when he's already looking at the ten. The Bible also says that this little horn has eyes like the eyes of a man. Now, it's interesting, when you do a study of the Bible, you discover that in several places in the Bible, it talks about God's prophets as being seers. You probably have remembered reading that somewhere, right? God's prophets are called seers. That's because they see with the eyes of God. They see with the wisdom of God. They see with the counsel of God. But now we have this little horn that is going to see with the eyes of man. And so this little horn is going to be working from the wisdom of man, not from the wisdom of God. And nearly every Bible commentary out there says that this is the Antichrist power. 
Now, this power is claiming to see with the eyes of God, but it tells us it's seeing with the eyes of man. So what we have here is a human religious system based on man's teachings rather than God's that is going to rise up out of Rome sometime after 476 A.D. And I want you to notice what it says in Daniel 7, verse 24. It says that this beast is diverse. This beast is different than all of the others. He shall be different from the first ones, it says. Now, let's think about that for a moment. We know from the ten toes that the symbolism is that there are ten divisions of Rome. And so here we see in the beast ten divisions of Rome. And so a horn represents a kingdom. Just like the beast does. But there are beasts that are coming out of that beast, right? And so here we have the divisions of Rome. And so the horns are representing political powers. They're representing kingdoms. We have the divisions of Rome even today, modern day Europe. But this horn is different. And so it's still a horn. It's still a political power. But it's different. Because this horn also has religious power. Or what we would call a religio-political power. And what does the Bible tell us that this power would do? I want you to notice what it says in Daniel 7.25. And he shall speak great words or pompous words or blasphemies against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. That's in the King James Version. The, The New King James says persecute the saints. So let's see what the next clues are that we have. This power is going to speak blasphemy against God. Now, we need to understand what blasphemy is. And we could make up our own definition, but we should probably let the Bible interpret itself, right? The Bible gives us two definitions of blasphemy. Jesus was accused of blasphemy because He claimed to be equal with God. Is that right? And it would have been true, except that He's God. If He were merely a man, it would have been blasphemy. And the second definition is that Jesus was accused of blasphemy because He said to someone, your sins are forgiven. And so the biblical definition of blasphemy is claiming to be God or God's representative or have the power of God and claiming to be able to forgive sins. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 25 continues, and he will think to change times and laws. Let me just do a quick recap. This power is going to come out of Rome during the time of divided Rome after 476 A.D., He is going to claim to see with the eyes of God, but he sees with man's wisdom. He is a blaspheming power because he claims to be equal with God or have God's authority or be God's representative on earth. And he claims to be able to forgive sins. And now it says, 
Oh, and also that persecuting power. He persecutes God's people. And then now we have this other clue here. He thinks to change times and law. And so this power is going to attempt to change the very law of God. And this is obviously speaking about the divine laws of God, the Ten Commandment law of God. This is not speaking about some insignificant law like tax laws or, or uh, ceremonial laws or political laws or anything like that. And so Daniel chapter 8. Remember Daniel 2, 7, and 8 are parallel prophecies? Daniel chapter 8 also talks about this little horn. And he says, He shall cast truth to the ground and He will do all of this and prosper. And so here we see that this blaspheming power is also going to cast truth to the ground and allow error to prosper within the church. And it would claim to have the authority of God to change God's law. And so the question is, how did the change from the Sabbath to Sunday actually occur? Think about the plan. A little bit of error mixed in with truth over thousands of years and pretty soon error is taught as truth. And so the change of the Sabbath is going to occur gradually over a long period of time. And it is going to be the result of social and religious factors. You've got all of these things that are working at the same time to bring this about. I want you to notice what Dr. John Eady helps us to understand this in his uh, Bible encyclopedia. And I want you to notice what he says on page 561. He says, The Sabbath is a Hebrew word signifying rest. Sunday was a name given by the heathens to the first day of the week because it was the day on which they worshipped the sun. This is just a little bit of historical background that we're getting from this Dr. Edie. We look at history and we can see that sun worship was very common in Egypt, Babylon, Persia, and Rome. That area of the world was steeped in sun worship. And when it comes to the 4th century, the Roman Emperor Constantine is a man who has a strong devotion to the sun god. He's a believer in the sun god. And you can go back through history and you can see that he even put the sun god on many of the coins that he minted. But then there's somewhere along the way that he also had somewhat of a Christian conversion. But he's got a really big problem. Because you see, the Roman Empire is falling apart And it's basically being divided up into two groups. The Christians and the pagans. And so now he's trying to figure out how he can unite the two of them and bring stability back into the Roman Empire. And how is he going to do it? Well, he comes up with what he thinks is a brilliant idea. 
What he's going to do is he's going to bring the two of them together and unite them around Sunday worship. And at the same time, Christianity is growing and they are wanting to separate themselves from the Jews because of persecution in being associated with them. And so, here is the decree of Constantine in A.D. 321. On the venerable day of the sun, that Sunday, let the magistrates and the people residing in cities rest and let all of the shops be closed. Here we see an attempt to unite the empire and Constantine issues the first Sunday law. And the thing that we have to realize is that it was appealing to the pagans because they were already worshiping on Sunday. And it was also appealing to the Christians because of persecution. They're trying to separate themselves from the Jews. And so it was the catalyst, it was the path that he could take to try and bring the kingdom back together. So in the days of Constantine, you have the church and state united in an attempt to Christianize the pagans and to unite the empire. The Roman government and the Roman church are uniting in this. And here's an amazing statement about it that comes out of the Catholic world This is a book that was written in March of 1994, and this is a quote from page 809. It says, The Son was a foremost God with the heathendom. There's just a little bit of history. And then it says, There is, in truth, something royal, something kingly about the Son, making it a fit emblem of Jesus, the Son of Justice. So here we see the church saying, wow, this emblem of the Son is just kingly. We should make this symbol be representative of Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness. And this is directly from the church of Rome that's saying this. But they go on to say, hence the church in these countries would seem to have said, keep that old pagan name, it shall remain consecrated, sanctified. You see what's happening now? Now they're saying, well, the Son is kingly, it represents Jesus Christ, so let's hallow Sunday. Let's make it sacred. Let's sanctify it. And thus the pagan Sunday dedicated to Balder, that's the sun god, became the Christian Sunday sacred to Jesus. You see, Sunday gradually became emphasized because the Christians were trying to get away from the persecution from being associated with the Jews. And gradually, church leaders, in order to make sun god worshipers more comfortable, they started keeping Sunday in the place of the Sabbath. 
Constantine wanted to unite the empire and Roman church leaders wanted to convert the pagans. And Sunday became the vehicle to accomplish both of them. And so the biblical Sabbath was changed by the Roman church. I want you to notice that God didn't change it. Jesus didn't change it. The disciples didn't change it. The Catholic Church Council then came together in a place called Laodicea and the records show that they made the first prohibition against keeping the biblical Sabbath. And the Roman Catholic bishops met there and I want you to notice what the record shows happened. This is at the Council of Laodicea four years after Constantine made his decree that everyone should start worshiping on Sunday. Christians shall not Judaize and be idle on Saturday. They shall not keep the Sabbath, that's what it's saying, and be idle on Saturday. But then it continues, but the Lord's Day, which they say is Sunday, they shall especially honor, and as being Christians shall, if possible, do no work on that day. If, however, they are found Judaizing, they shall be shut out from Christ." Now we have the Catholic Church going on record saying you can no longer worship on Saturday and if you do, we're going to kick you out of the church. We're going to cut you off from Christ. In doing this, however, they unknowingly, unwittingly, we're fulfilling Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, where it says that this power would think to change times. That word times is plural. And if you go back to the original text, you see that what it's saying is repeated points in time. And so the church is changing the repeated points of time of the weekly Sabbath to repeated points of time of Sunday worship. I want you to listen to what it says in the Converts Catechism. This is a Roman Catholic instructional guide for people that come into the church. Notice what it says. They ask the question, which is the Sabbath day? They answer the question, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Question, why do we observe Sunday then instead of the Sabbath? Notice their answer. Because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. That word solemnity means holiness. What the Catholic Church is saying that they did is they took God's holy day and they transferred the holiness to Sunday. Now, you can look in any convert's catechism and you can see that. But let's go to the Catholic Encyclopedia. I want you to look at volume 4, page 153. And I want you to notice what it says. 
the church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath of the seventh day of the week to the first, made the third commandment refer to Sunday as the day to be kept holy as the Lord's day. Now, I want to point out three very important points here. First of all, they say they're the ones that change the day. Second, I want you to notice here that they are the ones that began the idea that Sunday was the Lord's day. And then I want to point out to you that it says the Sabbath of the seventh day of the week to the first made the third commandment refer to Sunday. Now you and I know that the Ten Commandments of God have the fourth commandment as the Sabbath commandment. So the question is, why are they saying here the third commandment? That's because the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, changed the law of God, the Ten Commandment law, they took the second commandment out. The commandment that refers to you shall not make for yourself any graven images or bow down to them. That's because during this time when they're trying to conciliate the pagans and bring them into the church, now you have all of these pagan images coming into the church. The statue that used to represent Jupiter now represents St. Peter. The one that used to represent Tammuz and her son now represents Mary and Jesus the baby. And you have all of these idols coming into the church and you can't have that and the commandment. And so the church says, take out the commandment. And so they took out the second commandment and then they moved all of the others up. And so the third became the second, the fourth became the third, all the way down to the tenth, which says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And they divided it in two. So now the ninth commandment would say, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And the tenth says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And friends, you can go to any catechism book and you can see those two things. The question, and you can see that they changed it and they took the second commandment out. I have a convert's catechism right here. I grew up in the Lutheran church. I went through catechism. And you can look at it in here, or you can go home and you can look at your own, but you will see that the second commandment If you compare that to Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses, it's missing the second commandment. And I want you to notice what Carl Keating says. He is one of the foremost Catholic scholars and he wrote a book called Catholicism and Fundamentalism, The Attack on Romanism by Bible Christians. And I want you to notice what he says on page 38. He says, fundamentalists, that's what he's saying Catholics are, meet for worship on Sunday. Yet there is no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sundays. The Jewish Sabbath, or day of rest, was of course Saturday. 
It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the resurrection. Now, we need to understand that what this man is doing is he is challenging Protestants. He's saying, look, the Bible clearly shows that if we are going to be a Bible Christian, that we should be worshiping God corporately on Saturday. But the Catholic Church says you should do it on Sunday. So if you're not worshiping God on the Sabbath, the true Sabbath, then you should just come on back to the Mother Church. Just come on home. That's his argument. And I think it's a good one. You see, friends, the issue here in the last days is more than a matter of what day you worship God corporately on. The issue is what is going to be your guide. Is it going to be the Bible? Or is it going to be tradition? The issue is, does any human church or any human religious leader, for whatever reason or motive they may have, do they have the authority to change God's law that was written by His own hand in stone? And so the issue is one of authority. I want you to notice what the Bible says in Psalm 89 verse 34. God says, My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Here we see God saying, I don't change. I am not going to alter my commandments. I am not going to alter what I say. Now, let me show you a couple more verses. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. That's going to be page 205 of your seminar Bible. And I want to thank John for pointing this out to me last night. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And I want you to notice what the Bible says in verse 2. This is God speaking to Moses. He's speaking to us. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Clearly from the word of God... God Himself says to us, you don't have the authority to change My law. Don't you dare add anything to it. Don't you dare take anything away from it. That's what it's saying. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, page 1115. This is the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever given. And I want you to notice what Jesus Himself says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one yacht or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it is all fulfilled. Friends, as far as I can tell, Heaven and earth have not passed away yet. And so God's law will not change. Friends, in these last days of earth history, it's a matter of authority. The issue is a matter of who is your master. 
Is it Jesus? Is it the Word of God? Or is it going to be the leaders of the church? You see, you and I can't make a day holy. We can't arbitrarily decide that we're going to take the holiness of God's day and move it to another day. Well, I guess we can, but let's think about that for a minute. If God says, I want you to corporately worship me on this day, and we arbitrarily decide, I'm going to do it on this day, then who are we really worshiping? We can't arbitrarily decide that Sunday is going to be the day that we worship corporately. Because remember, the issue in these last days is over worship. And we're talking about the difference between false worship and true worship. That's why we've chosen this theme for our Bible study. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. And even if everything that I've been taught for my entire life disagrees with the Bible, I am going to make the Bible my source of authority. If it disagrees with the Bible, I'm throwing it out. It's not for me. And so the question is, what is the foundation of your faith? Is it the Bible? Or is it what man says? What is the basis of authority in spiritual matters? Is it the church? Or is it God's will? To give up the Bible Sabbath and, and was given by God as a sign of His creative authority is a huge matter in these last days. A huge matter. And I would rather follow what God gave to Adam. I would rather follow what God gave to Moses. I would rather follow what Jesus revealed when He was here on this earth. You see, God's Sabbath is a sign between you and Him that you belong to Him. It is a sign that we believe that He created our world. It is a sign that we are true followers of His Word. And that's why in the last days of earth's history, it describes God's people in Revelation 14.12, they are the ones who keep the commandments of God. And the implication there is that they keep all of them. They keep them because they love Him, and they love Him, therefore they obey Him. You see, friends, it's more than a matter of days. In the Garden of Eden, Eve probably said, what's the big deal? This tree doesn't look any different than all of the others. And yet Satan deceived her into disobeying God's commandments. And what is Satan doing? He's doing the same thing today. He doesn't have to change his tactics because they still work. At the end of time, he is trying to deceive you into disobeying God's law. 
And if you disobey God's law, in His eyes, you are disqualified from salvation. And as the judgment is going on, you can bet that He is arguing that you belong to Him because you broke God's law. His tactics haven't changed. And I want to show you this. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Just a couple more verses. We're almost done. Revelation 12. And we looked at this verse already earlier, but I want to look at it again. Revelation 12. That's going to be page 1416. And I want you to notice what the Bible says in verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who does what? Who deceives the whole world. You see, he's doing the same thing that he did in the Garden of Eden. And how does he do it at the end of time? Mix a little bit of error in with truth for thousands of years and pretty soon it's being taught as truth. And the whole world is deceived and don't even know it. Look with me in Revelation 13, verse 4. The Bible says, So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. Here's the thing, friends. If you're not following the commandments of God, whether you are purposefully doing it or unknowingly, you are really worshipping the dragon. That's what it says. By giving your homage to the beast, by following what the beast says to do, you're really worshiping Satan. Whether you think you are or not, that's what the Bible says. Friends, do you see the deception that is going on right underneath our noses? This may be a complete and total shock to you and totally contrary to everything that you have been taught your entire life. But please, think about this. I haven't given you any of my own views or ideas. I have taken you directly into the Word of God. It may not feel like one day matters to you and me. But apparently... It matters to God. Because there's only one day that God blessed. There's only one day that God rested on and wants us to rest with Him on. There's only one day that God made holy. And so apparently it's important to God. And the issue that we are dealing with in the last day is an issue of authority. It is an issue of obedience. It's our choice. Are we going to go by the Bible or are we going to go by tradition? Are we going to follow Jesus or religious leaders? Are we going to follow God's law or the doctrines of men? Are we going to follow God's teaching or the teachings of men? Is it going to be God's way or our way or man's way? And God says to you and me tonight, The same thing that Joshua said. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. You see, friends, God gives you the freedom to choose. It's totally up to you. 
Now, someone might say, Pastor Rod, are you telling me that everyone who worships on Sunday is going to be lost? Absolutely not. That is not what I'm saying. Let me try to put this into the proper context. Do you think that Martin Luther is going to be in the kingdom of God? I do. I think he was the most holy man of his day. But when Martin Luther and the other reformers came out of the apostate corrupt church and they wanted to bring about reform, they started restoring truth, but they inadvertently, unknowingly brought some error with them. And so by the time of Martin Luther and the Reformation, they had already been keeping Sunday sacred for thousands of years. And so they brought that with them. And so here's the point. God doesn't hold you accountable for what you don't know. He holds you accountable for what you do know. And so I personally believe that there are going to be thousands, millions of Roman Catholics in the kingdom of God if they were living up to all the truth that they had. And I believe that Martin Luther will be there. But I also believe that if Martin Luther were alive today and he saw the prophecies the way we understand them at the end of time, he would be following and keeping the Sabbath as well. I have to believe that. He was a righteous man. And that's what God is calling you and me to. And all over the world tonight, tens and thousands of people are taking that step of faith. They're trusting God in His Word rather than in the words of men. And so I want to close with a couple more verses. I'm sorry, I said that the last two were the last. But I want to take you to two more. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 18. And I want to show you something here. That's going to be page 1421 of your seminar Bible. Revelation 18, verse 4. John says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. You see, friends, Jesus Christ is getting ready to come back to this earth. And before He comes, He is pouring out His plagues on the earth. And He says to you and me tonight, come out of the corrupt system. Come out of the apostate mother church and harlot daughters. And you won't be a part of those plagues. Now, let's go to one more verse. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. That's going to be page 1235 of your seminar Bible. And I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 16. He says, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear My voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. You see, friends, at the end of time, Jesus Christ is calling us away from false worship into true worship. He says, come out of that corrupt system. God has 
His people in the Catholic Church. He has them in the Presbyterian Church. He has them in the Lutheran Church. He has them in the Baptist Church. And He's calling them out in these last days. And He's saying, there's going to be one flock, one church. That's what God is calling us to. Do you want to be a part of that church? Do you want to come out of that broken system that Satan set up long ago and has brought about today right underneath our noses? If that's the desire of your heart, then pray with me now. Father in Heaven, Lord, You know every heart here. You know that there are many here whose minds are spinning. And Lord, we see perhaps that we have been a part of a lie and we didn't even know it. And so Lord, I want to lift up everyone here. And I want to pray that You would help us to not lean on our emotions, our feelings, because Lord, they can lead us astray. Lord, we want to lean on the Word of God. And so our prayer is that You can help each and every one of us examine this for ourselves to see if what I have spoken is true. And Lord, our prayer is that You would give us the strength and the courage to do whatever we need to do and whatever You would show us. And we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.